morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church. And today uh, you're joining us for another installment in our series entitled FAQ. These are frequently asked questions. Uh, each of the messages relates to a frequently asked question that I'm asked all the time about our Christian faith. Inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline where I'm headed today as we attempt to answer the question, won't being good enough or won't being good get me to heaven? It's a question I'm asked all the time, and it's a legitimate question, um, and it matters how we answer it. I want you to know that uh, as you go through the outline, you'll find a number of scriptures that I'll be mentioning uh, to support the uh, points that I make, and all of our resources on this come from God's Word. So we're grateful for the Bible. The Bible is our guide in all matters of faith and practice, and answering this question is no exception. If you need a pen, by the way, just raise your hand. If you didn't grab it on the way in, uh, the ushers will be coming up and down the aisles. They'll be glad to pass one to you so you can fill in the blanks. Take some notes, because this is a question you might be asked as well, and we hope this whole series will help you think through, hey, how would I answer these questions for myself? So let me have a word of prayer for us. We'll jump right in, and the ushers will keep passing those pens as we get started. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for people coming out on a holiday weekend. And uh, God, I pray that today you'll make our time together uh, worth it, that we'll meditate on some things that are of real importance here. Well, God, I thank you that um, you sent Christ into the world, and it matters that we understand that when we're trying to answer this question. And so, God, I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way and help us understand why it was so necessary for Jesus to save us from our sins and why we can't just get into heaven by trying to be good. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, point one on your outline is simply this, that no one is good enough to earn his or her way into heaven. So, won't being good, enough, won't being good get me to heaven? Well, at center point, our answer would be No. That isn't, no, it wouldn't be enough. And we want to tell you why this morning. And the first reason is that uh, no one's good enough to earn his or her own way. I want to unpack that, but I want you to read a statement. Just follow along with me. I'm reading this statement. This is from our statement of beliefs. Many, time I'm, many times I'm asked, hey, uh, what does Centerpoint believe? Well, you can go to our website and find our statement of beliefs there. This is one of them. There are 10 statements that are important to us define who we are as a congregation, as a church. And uh, this is a Centerpoint statement of belief regarding salvation. Salvation is the free and unmerited gift from God to humanity. It's maintained by the grace and power of God. It's not the result of any works or human efforts. And Christ's sacrificial death accomplished humanity's redemption once for all who accept and trust him as their Lord, turning from sin and repentance as he commands. There's no other name given under heaven by which people may be saved than Christ Jesus. Now, there are three important reasons why we have phrased this this way, and you'll see a number of scriptures that support this. First of all, we believe that, uh, that salvation comes from God and we can't earn it because God, first of all, is righteous and perfect. God is righteous and perfect. Where do I get that idea? Well, listen to these scriptures. Moses in Deuteronomy 32. How glorious is our God. His deeds are perfect. Would you circle that, please? Everything he does is just and fair. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. 1 John 1, 5. So Old Testament, New Testament. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is spotless. There's not one micro dot of sin or of darkness in his life anywhere. James 1, 13. God is never tempted to do wrong and never tempts anyone else. God never has a bad day, never has a bad thoughts, never said a wrong word. Everything he does is just and perfect. And keep that in mind as we go to point B. We, on the other hand, are all sinful and flawed. 
We are all sinful and flawed. Ecclesiastes 7.20, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Now, I know that you and I hate it when the Bible is vague, okay? That isn't vague. There's no one on earth who's always perfect and never sins. The Bible goes further and say, no, we're all sinners. In fact, look at the next scripture. I'll come back. I left off the last sentence. I'll come back to that in a minute. But look at Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Not only does the Bible say that we're sinful and flawed, we're really flawed. And when you and I understand this, then we begin to understand why it's impossible for, earn our, for us to earn our way to heaven. You want to earn your way to heaven? Be good enough? Sure. Okay, here's the secret. Never lie. Never steal. Never cuss. Never have a bad thought. Never have a lazy day. Never have a missed opportunity. Never, ever in your whole life, ever do anything wrong, think anything wrong, say anything wrong, or fail to do anything that you should have done that you never got around to. Never. And you just walk right in. Well, that's impossible. Exactly. And that's the reason why we have such a, there's such a big gap between us and God. In fact, point C says our sins have separated us from God. God's on one side of the Grand Canyon and we're on the other. And we got a million sins in between. Now I want to go back to that Romans 3 uh, reference. I read you... Um, verses 10 through 12, but I left off verse 23. At the end of that, if we can put that back up, it says this, that everyone has sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, there's an interesting word that uh, the Bible uses there in the ancient Greek language, which was originally written in. And it's a word that's pronounced uh, hamartia. And the word simply meant the sin mark. Okay, and when you had an archery contest, what would happen is if I was, I'm just using darts instead of arrows, but if I'm having an archery contest, I throw at the bullseye. Well, that one got pretty close. That one was real close. And so what would happen is during a, an archery contest, when people would take their turns firing the arrows, they would have a pin at the center of the target and they would measure the string with a piece of string, the distance by which you missed the center, the bullseye. So that closest arrow was only this much. Second arrow, the second dart, this much. So after you took your turn, they'd cut off a piece of string and hand it to you. At the end of the competition, each of the competitors presented your string. This was your hemartia, your sin mark. It, became, it came to be a, used, a word used for character flaws. And some people had lots of hey Martia, okay? I mean, and it's still true today. And it's one of the reasons we think we can be good enough to get to heaven, because we tend to compare ourselves to others. We do. I mean, we do. We go through life and we say, well, okay, maybe this is Mother Teresa or something like that over here. And maybe this is somebody, a respected high school teacher. And maybe that's somebody else I know. And then there's people in Hollywood, okay, and they're over there. <laughs> and then we... Then we even come across somebody like Adolf Hitler. He's not even going the right way. <coughs> he doesn't even try. 
I mean, you need miles and miles of rope. He doesn't, he doesn't even care. He could care less. And so we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, the reason we think we can get right with God or that we can be good enough to get into heaven because we say, well, I'm, I'm better than Hitler. I'm better than those people in Hollywood. I don't know if I'm as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm pretty good. God's got to let me in. And we completely deny the fact that God is sinless. Be like, if we're covered with mud and we come up and embrace him, well, now he's covered with mud. I mean, he can't let us in if we're sinful. Our sin has separated us. In fact, Isaiah 53, 6 says this, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. And it's on our fault too. God didn't move away from us. We moved away from him. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. Last week we spoke briefly about this. I want to remind you of it again. The whole plot of the Bible is, is that God is sinless, created us, created the first two sinful pe- sinless people to be with him in the garden. And because he gave them the choice to love him or reject him so they could, they could love him freely, our ancestors chose to reject him. And we've inherited that same sinful nature. Adam and Eve were told never to eat from the fruit of one tree in the center of the garden. Because if they did, the day they did that, their eyes would be open to good and evil. They would know evil firsthand. But the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that when the, the fruit looked so delicious and, would, and the devil had tempted Eve and it would make her so wise and so she and Adam ate of the tree and then it goes on in your outline to say that they hid from the Lord God among the trees. If you'd circle the word hid, there's the first separation. As soon as we sin, we hide. It's a natural reaction. If we sin against someone else, if I sin against you, I want to cover up that sin. Did you tell somebody? No, I didn't say it, even if we said it. We'll lie. Kid breaks a cookie jar, and all of a sudden the cookie jar is kind of hidden behind the toaster. They hid from the Lord God among the trees. And when they made excuses and blamed each other, God was forced to drive them out of his presence. So the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and he stationed mighty cherubim, angels, to the east of the garden, placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Because if they ate of that tree of life, they would live forever in a rebellious state. There would be no remedy. Instead, they entered a cold, cruel world, but in that world, God showed them how to make sacrifices and atone for their sins. But we're separated from God. Because of our sin. All of us are flawed. And we don't just have a little bit of a problem. We have a big problem. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's not a one of us who would say, well, I don't have any sin, Mark. Now, I, I've never spoken to everyone in the world, but I have been on mission trips in China and in Russia and in South America and in Mexico. And because of my profession and other things, I've been asked to speak at each one of those places And at each one of those places, I've given a message that had this part in there. I've mentioned through a translator that all of us are sinful. There's no one perfect, no one in the whole world who never sins. And do you know that the people in Russia and the people in China and the people in South America and the people in Mexico, they didn't go, what are you talking about? You Americans believe that, but we here in Mexico, we never sin. What do you mean? The Russians didn't argue with the point. The Chinese didn't argue with the point. And maybe I just had a small sample. But the truth is, I don't think there's anyone in the world who would ever say, no, I'm perfect. Because we condemn ourselves. 
And I'm delivering this message to you on September 1, 2013. 9-1-2013. On 1-1-2013, many of us made New Year's resolutions. And we said, this year in 2013, I'm going to take off the weight. This year, I'm going to curb my temper. This year, I'm going to hold my tongue. This year, I'm going to get my checkbook organized. This year, I'm going to get in shape. Do I need to keep going on this for anybody? How are we doing? Now, these weren't rules put on us by God. These weren't rules put on us by our culture. These weren't rules put on us by anybody else. These are rules we said that I said would be good for me and you said would be good for you. You chose them freely. You said, I want this for me. I know it'll be good for me. There are resources available for me, and I'm going to do it. And we're still not doing it. Anybody here besides me failed on those New Year's resolutions? Anybody? We're talking about lying next week, so get those hands up, okay? (laughs) Now, how is that? If we are not sinful and flawed, how come we can't even obey the rules we lay upon ourselves? We're flawed. The Bible's right. We're not flawed just a little. We're flawed a lot. You know, it's really interesting because Sigmund Freud and some of his writings, Sigmund Freud was no Christian. He was an atheist. And yet in his counseling over and over again, he remarked that uh, when he would meet with people who would, from the outside, look like role models of society and perfect people, one of his writings, he said it was like he had lifted up a flat rock in a cow pasture next to a, a pond or something, and underneath there were all kinds of bugs and maggots and filth. He said there was an undercurrent in everybody's life. There were dark secrets they didn't want anybody to know about hidden passions and bad drives and things that weren't right that were propelling them through life. And when I tell you that, none of you have a hard time believing it. Because we all know things that we would never want people to know, things we've thought or things we've experienced that we struggle with. And so the whole idea would be to say, well, where are all these good people? Well, couldn't somebody just be good enough? Aren't there any people who just never sin? Have no string at all? Mm -mm. The Bible says, no, there's no one. And that was why it was important for Jesus to come into the world, God's son. Because Isaiah 59, 2 tells us our sins have cut us off from God. They've cut us off. God wants a relationship with us, but our sins have separated us. My sins and yours, we've missed the mark. All of us, each and every one. And that brings us to point two. Jesus made it possible to be reconciled with God. Now imagine... If the penalty for having a string like this was a billion dollars an inch. And every careless word and every careless thought was an inch. Well, I can never pay this. Right. But what if somebody who never sinned, had no string, came in and said, let's swap. My life for yours. I'll take your sins and pay the penalty you can't pay. You take my righteousness upon yourself. That's an unbelievable deal. Yet that's exactly what Jesus came to do. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the apostle says, Paul says, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I mean, that's the point. We look at our hopeless situation and say, I can never fix myself. In fact, those of us who've tried to fix things, you know, and we've said something wrong or done something foolish, we even try to fix the situations. How many of you have discovered, just like I have, that sometimes when you try to fix it, you only make it worse? Anybody else ever had that happen? Okay, well, it happens. And so the very thing, or I make another resolution, this year I'm going to get it right. This year I'm going to stop doing that. And that's why it's so important to have Christ come in and say, you can't do this on your own. You need a rescuer. You don't need to try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And when we were utterly helpless, this is Romans 5, the Apostle Paul again, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. If that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Amen. This is why we sing praises to him. He came to rescue people who needed rescuing. He didn't come to pat us on the back and say, yeah, you guys are good enough. Come on in. Way to go. John, you earned it. Instead, it's just the opposite. I'll take your sins upon myself. I'll die so you can live. I'll exchange my life for yours. And that's why as Christians we have a cross hanging around our necks. That's why in the middle of the center point logo there's a cross right in the middle of it. The cross is the middle of all we do. It reminds us every time we look at it that Jesus died so we could live. He became the sacrifice that I should have paid. You too. If you flip your outline over, it brings us to another important conclusion then. Christ's sacrifice for us must be a gift. I mean, if we can't earn it, then it's a gift, which is exactly what the Bible presents. Ephesians 2, God saved you by his grace. That's unmerited favor when you believed, undeserved favor. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast. And please underline, none of us can boast. So none of us can boast. Now, there are many times when people, as I'm talking about this and People have asked me the question in my office at a place where I'm talking about, well, none of us are good enough. They go, well, okay, I'll even grant you that. Nobody's perfect, but surely God just grades on a curve. We've all had a test in high school or college or somewhere where, you know, we get the paperback and we got a 47 on it. Turn to the guy next to us, what'd you get? He had a 51. Well, I guess we all failed. And the teacher comes in and goes, well, class, y'all failed. This is terrible. But good news, I'm going to curve the scores. So... The instructor adds 40 points, and now all of a sudden my 47 becomes an 87, and I pass. And I go, Whew, that's great. And I always think, well, that's the way it works with God and his perfection and his holiness. Since we all miss it, well, he'll just kind of curve the scores. But then at the same time, a lot of times when we're asking for God to do that, just kind of grade us on a curve, some of the same people will also turn around and say, but I just wish all the religions in the world would just get along. But there's an unintended consequence of grading on a curve. You can see when I find out we're grading on a curve and I got a 47 and I look around and the other guy got a 51, I'm looking over at your, but what'd you get? 39. <laughs> yeah, you're in trouble. 
I mean, you understand, if we're grading on a curve, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be better than you. Hey, I don't want a God who's perfect. I want a God who grades on the curve. But I also want a world where nobody is judging anybody else. But of course, grading on a curve means that I am probably going to have to try to be better than you. Because somewhere on the curve is still a cutoff line who doesn't get in. But now it's a free-for-all competition. And I'm thinking I'm doing better than you are. Now, if it's a free gift and none of us made it, then all of us can come. And I don't have to worry about competing with you. We're all sinners. We all miss the mark. doesn't matter if we miss by a half an inch or we miss by a mile. Who cares? Come to Jesus. You have to be rescued anyway. But if we're grading on a curve, well, now I care because now I'm looking at my score and what's yours. And if I think I did better than you, then I'm making a petition to the instructor. Hey, they got that question wrong. I got this question wrong. This one should be weighted more. I'm smarter than she is. I'm better than he is. Let me in. Is that the world we want? Do not misunderstand this. The gospel doesn't go around saying, hey, the Christians are better than everybody else. The gospel says we're all sinners. Not one of us has a prayer of walking into God's presence without being rescued. We have no right to judge or condemn anyone else. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done. Not but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit, which is why when we baptize people, we put them in a white robe to show that all of our sins have been washed away by what Jesus did, not by what I did. So I cannot be good enough, and please don't ask that God grade us on a curve and then say we shouldn't be judgmental. He's grading on a curve. You're asking for judgment, and you're asking me to compete with you. Now, it's important then, if we are going to come to Christ and accept this gift, well, how do we do it? Well, the first step is to be reconciled with God. We must acknowledge our sin and accept God's gracious gift of his son. And you say, well, who wouldn't do this? Lots of people. This is an offense. The gospel is offensive to many. Because you and I, when we come to Christ, first of all, we have to admit we're sinners. We have to acknowledge I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. And that's a big hurdle for a lot of us. Because we're used to making our own way. We're used to pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I'm going to do it my way. I've paid, I'll pay the bills myself. Thank you. And I don't think I'm that bad. And the gospel is offense. It's an offense to people, right and left. And people want to appeal to this. Because we want to compare ourselves to others. And there's a certain satisfaction knowing that I'm better than you. If I'm smarter or taller or prettier... Or more moral, I can hold my head up high. At least I can hold my head up around you. And we like competition. But when we come up against God, who's perfect, there's not a one of us who can compete with him. And he doesn't want us to. Just come to me. Have your sins washed away. This is the way Jesus put it. He said, look, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Believes that he came into the world to save us. The righteous for the unrighteous. 
in order to bring us to God. There was a swap. His life for ours. Paying a debt I could never pay. Jesus told a story about this once, about a rich man who had two sons. He was illustrating God's heart in this whole matter. He said there was once a man who had two sons, the younger son first. The younger son one day told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And please underline, packed all his belongings. You pack all your belongings, you're not intending to come back. To make it clear, this is somebody who knows all about what the father stands for and says, no thanks. So, don't misunderstand this. This is somebody who knew what he was doing. Wasn't coming back. Packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him to, in his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, and no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, you know, at home, even the hired hands have enough food, enough to have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my father and say, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, this was the speech he'd rehearsed in the pig slop. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and he has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began and I want to tell you today, if you've been far away from God, if you've known the right thing to do and you've chosen to go and pack all your belongings and you've been running from him and somehow you found your way here this morning, let me remind you of the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, his love for you is unending. His mercy upon you is a free gift. All he asks is that you come to your senses like the son did when he was in pig slop and say, I got to come home. I'm tired of living this way. I've chosen to go my own way, and it's destroying me. I was a fool. And Jesus said, now you understand the Father's heart. He is waiting for you to come back. If you're here today and you've been rebelling against God and you've been running far from Him, in fact, you've been going as fast as you can in the wrong direction, and now all the pain and all the consequences of bad choice after sinful habit, after wrong behavior have caught up with you, Come home. Stop going the wrong way. God wants you back. He loves you. And that's the note in your outline that repentance is a necessary part of reconciliation with God. In the margin, if you just draw a U-turn symbol, that's what it means to repent. In Acts 3, Peter said, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. To repent means just to make a U-turn. Stop going the wrong way. Come to your senses. Come home. And when Jesus came into the world, he came to proclaim the good news. And that's why people were angry with him, many in the religious establishment, because he went out and 
proclaimed the good news to notorious sinners and prostitutes and drunkards and all kinds of people that people said were too filthy and they were too far away from God to ever come home. And Jesus said, nonsense. I came into the world to save lost sinners. And so good news to you this morning. God loves you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. He wants you to come to him. We need to acknowledge our sins and accept God's gracious gift of his son. God, I need you to die for me. And some of us, we could say, I don't have an inch. I don't have a yard. Lord, I got a whole spool. And Jesus says, well, give it to me. I'll take care of it. Welcome home. But there's more to the story. Those of us who've been Christians for a while must accept repentant sinners and give them support and encouragement. Because in the crowd, there were people who were notorious sinners, but there were also people who were very religious. And Jesus had a word for them in this story too, because there were two sons. I told you about the younger one who ran away, came to his senses and came home. The father welcomed him back. The story goes on, talks about the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. He asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. He wouldn't even go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you. Never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me one of one young goat to feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, notice he doesn't even call him his brother. The son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. And there were religious leaders in Jesus' day. They would have told you that they needed God to rescue them. But they also said, in addition to belief with God, you've got to have the behavior. And out comes the string again. You know, I'm measuring over here because I've been going to church and I've been offering the right sacrifices and I've been saying the right prayer. You, on the other hand, you don't measure up. And if we're not careful, that same kind of attitude can sneak into our hearts. It's been noted by many people that when we come to Christ as sinners and we repent of our sins, we all come like the younger brother. But unfortunately, if we've been in church for 10 years or 20 years, been hanging around things, and we've realized God has changed our attitudes about things, we've given up old sinful habits, it's an easy temptation now to judge others who aren't where we are. And we can become the older brother. Well, now I know God let me in, but who let her in? Who let him in? And we forget all about the fact that Jesus came into the world to save lost sinners. In that same chapter in Luke 15, here's what else Jesus said. I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Are we rejoicing over that? Are we rejoicing over the fact that I'm closer to God than other people are? Because then the grading on the curve thing can sneak even into our lives as Christians. And we begin to think we're better at it than other people are. 
And that's a very great sin. So this morning, I just remind us that the answer to the question of whether or not we can be good enough to get into heaven is, sure, if you're perfect. You've always been perfect. Never do anything wrong. Never have a bad thought. Never miss one opportunity. Go right on in. But if you are, as the Bible says, flawed and sinful, and you're convinced of that, well, then you need a Savior. Because you can't work this out on your own. The good news is, that Savior is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world for that express purpose, to rescue us. And if you come to Him, you and I can be forgiven of our sins. And God wants those of us who have already come to have His same heart and not be like the older brother sitting outside going, well, God, I don't understand why you're bringing in all these sinners. Why are you having a party in heaven for them? Because I love them and I came to rescue them. And the father was just begging his son, will you share my heart? I mean, you already have all the rewards. Why would you want to close the door so other people can't come? And I think that's a valid challenge for us today. Because when we watch a lot of sinful things going on in our world, on the television or on the internet, how often do you and I stop and pray for those people? I mean, we can be shocked and horrified by the things we saw and heard about Miley Cyrus this last week, but how many of us stopped and prayed for her? We can be shocked and horrified about things that are going on in Egypt and how Christians are being mistreated, but how many of us are praying for their persecutors? It should trouble us because Jesus died for them too. I'd like for us to have a word of prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice, and there are some things in your word that are just hard for me to hear. God, first of all, I want to thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners like me. I'm grateful. In a moment of silence right now, if you've been running from God and you've been running far, like the younger son, you knew what was right and you said, I'm packing my belongings, I'm out of here. Even if you weren't raised to do such things, you chose that way anyway. Would you repent of your sins and come home now and say, God, please forgive me. I need forgiveness. I'm a sinner. I can't even believe they're talking about this today. God, would you forgive me? Would you wash away my sins? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to become the person you always wanted me to be? Forgive me, Lord. Save me. Change me. If you've been a Christian for a while and you have a friend who's lost, making horrible life choices right now, far away from God, running the wrong way, off in a distant country of wild living, would you pray for that man and woman right now? Could be your brother, could be a co-worker. Could it be somebody else you know? Would you just pray for them right now and say, God, would you bring them home? Would you bring them to their senses so they could see what they're doing?
And now would you pray for one person who appalls you, an activist, a movie star, an athlete, a politician, somebody who is far, someone who condemns Christianity and mocks the things of God openly. Would you pray for them right now? Pray for them by name. If you know their name, pray for them. Say, God, I just want to pray. I've never prayed for them. I can't stand the way they make fun of you, Lord. I pray, Lord, you would reach out to them. Maybe they'd have a friend. Or maybe they'd watch a program on television. Or maybe they'd find something on the internet. Or maybe they'd pick up a Bible in a hotel room. Lord, bring them home to you. Well, Lord, I thank you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I pray that we'll be rejoicing in our hearts when people repent too, and I pray that we will seek that. I pray that you will never let us forget what you've done for us and we'd hold the door of heaven wide open for others. I pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, the one who came to wash away all our sins, the one who took my sins upon himself, who paid a debt I could never pay, who died so I could live. I pray these things in that marvelous name of Christ our Lord. Amen.